Well, I appreciate so much the uh, testimony of all those that have shared this morning. Thank you. Um, and there are a lot of others of you that could have shared testimony, and some of you serve with some of those that uh, spoke the testimony today. And uh, I'm grateful for all of your heart and your service and your investment in the kingdom of God. Uh, one of those handouts that is inserted in your program, this little card that we've been saying everybody needs a GPS. Now, we're not suggesting that you run out to the local technology store and get something for your car, but everyone needs a GPS in the sense of they are having some awareness of what God's doing in this world, and because of that, they give, and they pray, and they serve. And we've been talking for these last few minutes about the service aspect of that. And uh, if that isn't exactly a reality in your life right now, maybe you've got some vision. Maybe you've got some nudgings and stirrings from God about a way that you can plug in. Uh, certainly the uh, 100% discount store that's coming up this Saturday needs your participation. Uh, the store will be a great success if, A, we have stuff in it, and, B, people come and get it. And so uh, for your donations and contributions to that, that'll be huge. Uh, you can see Linda for more about that. But uh, as I get into a little bit more of the give and pray piece in my talk with you today, uh, it occurred to me that we need to spend a few minutes on the why. We've done a little bit about the how to serve, but why? And uh, such thinking takes me to the Gospel of John. And if you have uh, your Bible or New Testament, you might want to look at the third chapter. There are a lot of people in the Bible that I love reflecting on their life and looking at their life over and over again. And Nicodemus is one of those. If you don't know Nick, you ought to get to know him. Because he is a whole lot like you and like me. Nicodemus was a member of the religious ruling body of his day in the Jewish community there in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. This meant that uh, he had a lot of uh, influence that brought him some power and prestige. Uh, he was an instructor to others about the law of God and therefore the ways of God. And yet he was a whole lot like of other people when Jesus Christ came on the scene. He didn't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus did not fit the box that so many religious leaders had created for God. And so as he would scratch his head more times than not in hearing Jesus speak or seeing Jesus conduct himself in certain kinds of ways... His curiosity turned from just being uh, in a kind of a wondrous state to becoming convinced. This man's of God. Now, that was no small realization for a religious leader in his day because most considered Jesus to be another false prophet or some kind of false messiah or some kind of rebel rouser who was going to bring down the wrath of Rome on the local Jewish population. Some uh, considered him to be a blasphemer, which is to say an anti-God kind of person. And yet Nicodemus 
thinks that Jesus is of God. And so he goes and seeks him out one night. If you're looking at the first couple of verses of John chapter 3. And when he comes up to Jesus by night, he immediately honors him and calls him rabbi. Which was uh, a term of respect about someone who was a teacher in the ways of God. And he confessed, I can tell that you are a man of God, that the things you do are of God. Now, lest you think that your affirmations of Jesus um, can win you points with Jesus, right on the heel of Nicodemus giving these affirmations, Jesus said, okay, let's just cut it to the chase here. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll never see heaven. You'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, how's that for shooting straight? Everything that you've invested your life in for all these years, the law, the teaching of uh, the rules and the regulations and all the rituals and the practices, uh, that does not score you enough points to get into heaven. You and everybody else must be born again or born from above. And Nicodemus is perplexed beside himself. You ever been there? And he says, how can that be? You ever wondered that? And so he says, well, you mean like, no, you don't mean like I would re-enter my mother and then be born again from my mother. Or something. I mean, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born of the Spirit of God. Just like your parents had a part in giving you physical birth and you were brought into this world by a physical birth, you will be brought into the world of God's Spirit and God's rule and reign and domain when you are born by His Spirit. And perhaps uh, Nicodemus is finding his heart softened to such ideas and inclined. And Jesus then goes on to give what, for a lot of us, may be the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, in chapter 3 at verse 16 when he says, here's what you got to get, Nicodemus. God so loved the world that He gave His own one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In the next verse, He said, see, you got to understand, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. So the question kind of comes home to you and to me. Nicodemus later got it. Do you get it? That you must be born again. This is not a matter of being good enough so that you can get on the right side of God and go to heaven someday. Because Jesus 
says it's not about being good. It's about being forgiven. Now, Americans don't believe that. United States of America citizens don't really buy that. We buy the belief that it's a matter of being good enough. And let's face it, there's some really, really bad people in the world, and there are some pretty good people in the world, and there's some okay good people in the world, and there's some that do a little bit of bad in the world. And somewhere on that scale, I'm above the little bit of bad in the world and the pretty good in the world, and as far as God's curve is concerned, I'm going to be okay. I am more good than bad. And Jesus later told us in that same gospel, the 14th chapter, I am the way. I am the way, Jesus said. Not your way of self-righteous or self-goodness or, or, or deeds that you can perform in this life. I am the way. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And let's just be honest, friends. A lot of us don't like that verse. We don't like it uh, being attributed to Jesus. We would like for there to be like this little exception clause that, you know, Jesus was just using hyperbole on one occasion, and this is one of those occasions, or something like that. Because uh, in our country, we like to say, not only do we tolerate all the other faiths and all the other systems of belief, but we give them equal credence. And there's a lot of difference, friends, between tolerating and allowing freedom for a variety of belief. There's a lot of difference in tolerating that and giving it all equal weight. There are not, okay? I just am saying it as clearly and I pray compassionately as I can. There are not many ways to God and to heaven. There are admirable things about other faiths. There are some values that can contribute to society and to this world and other faiths. But they cannot, cannot, cannot square you up with God and seal your home in heaven forever. Jesus said it. I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the way. And this is why. We have a mission. Because there is a big world out there and we are in a big country here that are looking a lot of different ways. And that's bad news. But we have good news. God's not looking to condemn anybody. He's looking to save everybody that will come to Him through Christ. And that's why in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, Jesus said, to all those that get it, to all those that will look to Me as the way, to all those who come to the Father through Me, as the Father has sent Me, I'm sending you. You, my follower, now have my mission. You have inherited everything that the Father was doing through me. He's now going to do through you, the church. And that's the why, my friend. Because we have found the way. And it would be very unloving 
and unkind to not let others know the way, the good news about the way. Now, C.S. Lewis captured a lot of this in one of his stories. And I find it even more relevant to today than maybe even when he wrote it around uh, the Second World War because of what's going on, uh, particularly in our country. Some of you noticed the study that came out of Trinity College this past week, a a survey of 54,000 adults that found America is now less religious and less Christian than uh, ever before. In fact, uh, we now are 15% of the general population preferring no religion to any religion. In 1990, that was 8.2% of the population. Now it's 15. Now, this church has been here since 1990. In the lifespan of this church, our, our country has become more irreligious by almost double than when we started this church. We started this church because the country was already so irreligious. And now it's almost twice as irreligious. 34% in Vermont prefer no religion to any other religion. It's the number one conviction in Vermont. Uh, I guess we can congratulate ourselves. The Northwest is no longer the least churched and least religious part of the country. Now the Northeast is in New England, as of this last survey. 30% of those who have gotten married over the last year did so without any kind of religious connotation to it. And 27% said uh, when they get ready to die and be buried, they prefer no religious aspect to that. In Lewis's time, C.S. Lewis, similar things were going on across Europe. And it seemed like a, a rather dark time to him and to a lot of other people. We've got no economic challenge today compared to what was going on in his day. And so, uh, with that as a backdrop, he wrote a number of stories that became known as the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, for those of you that are familiar with the stories or you've seen the movie, uh, you know that Narnia is a place that at one time was full of life and vibrance, but now has become cold and dark And the saying is, it's winter all the time, only there's no Christmas. You get that? And there is a white witch in Narnia who tabs herself as the queen of Narnia. And she continues to expand her rule and her dominion over the dark, cold realm of Narnia. And some seekers some sojourners, if you will, enter the picture in childlike fashion. And they are amazed at this place called Narnia and the mysterious power of this white witch. 
and a very humble character engages these four little seekers and begins to explain to them what is. What is Narnia? What is the White Witch? What is the current situation where it's winter all the time? And you need to know the rest of the story. This is really the realm of Aslan. And of course, Aslan is this lion who is depicted as the king of Narnia, the true ruler and sovereign of Narnia. And it just seems to a lot of people he's been absent. He hasn't been around. Things have been abdicated so that the White Witch has come into a greater prominence and a greater power. And the humble character tells these four seekers, but Aslan is on the move. I know it looks dark. I know it looks bleak. I know it looks like the White Witch has great power. But Aslan is on the move. Now, if you've read the stories or if you've seen the movie, that is like my favorite book, my, my favorite part in the book or in the story. I get stirred every time I see or hear that phrase because the lion is the, the Christ character. And even though it looks like we're in a dark world, even though it looks like there is an enemy to our soul that really has more prominence and more power all about us, not just Lewis, but the Scriptures would want you to know God is on the move. God is at work. God is still on the throne and still sovereign. And as we were saying in our prayer class before this service began, there has never been an oops from the lips of God. This transpired on earth? Oops! Never happened. He knows all. He cares about it all. He's going to do something about it all. And He already is doing much about it. So, I, I didn't tell you in advance to bring your passport. So we'll just do a little trip today. No passport needed. And I'm going to take you around the world in just a few minutes and let you see a few things that God is up to. Most of you are aware that India is an incredibly populous place. It has more than a billion citizens. It is a world within a world. They possess 17% of the world's population. It's a country that is divided by invisible boundaries of religion and caste and economic status and education and racial origin. It is said to be the home of 330 million gods, little g. The Bajuri people of the northern state of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh are 85% Hindu. The rest are Muslim or animist. From 1947 right around the end of the war, to 1993, in this northern state, there were 28 churches. 47 to 93. 28 little churches. In 93, the 28 became 36 in one year. In 94... The number of churches became 78. And then in 95, 220. 
By October 2000, there were 4,300 churches that baptized 300,000 believers. Over 66,000 of those had been baptized in one 12-month span. The average size of a church there is about 85 members. 4,300 churches with about 85 members, give or take. That's one state, one area in India. I could have given you ten more. But let's go to China. Today, China is home to the fastest growth of the church in the world. Now, this is a great surprise to many who have been observing Chinese history. Because you'll remember after World War II, it became very turbulent in China. Mao Zedong began to uh, place a lot of his programs in place that were very detrimental to the people. Between 1955 to 1960, 10 million Chinese died primarily by starvation through his successful programs. But not to be deterred, he uh, brought about another program, another revolution, 1966 through 76. It sponsored a lot of terrorism toward any anti-governmental type entity like other faiths, like churches. And so there was not just the expelling of missionaries and, and Christian leaders, but a lot of martyrdom, a lot of killing of missionaries and Christian leaders. When he died in 1976 and communism began to loosen some of its grip on what was going on in the country, some were able to go back in around 1982 and just assess what's going on in this country that had seen Christianity began to have some kind of flowering effect before the war. In 1982, they discovered there were only 1.3 million Christians. China had over 500 million people at that point. By 2000, by the year 2000, 1.3 million Christians had become 90 million Christians. Nowhere on earth are so many people coming to Christ. Nowhere on earth. Across China, one estimate has shown us 30,000 people are baptized as followers of Christ every day. 30,000 a day. One example of God's work is in the city of Baishan in northern China. In 1986, a pastor by the name of Sulam graduated from seminary, went back to this hometown, decided that God wanted uh, a church to be planted, uh, began to fellowship with a few people and led about 14 to be Christ followers, and there was the core, the nucleus of a church. In um, 1987, they chartered that church with 14 Members, in 1993, they had a thousand. It was a very exciting thing to see happen. It was so exciting and so noteworthy that the mayor of the city and the head of the Religious Affairs Bureau decided to investigate. 
And when they began to investigate Pastor Lamb and the church, and they attended multiple events and multiple services in their investigation, they concluded, this pastor only preaches the Bible. This pastor does not preach an anti-government or an anti-policy kind of message. And so they uh, had the pastor come see them, and they said, we see that you only teach the Bible. And the pastor agreed. And they said, well, all these little rural areas all around this city are filled with religious groups and uh, Christian types that are preaching anti-policy and anti-government types of things. We want you to disciple them. Are you hearing that? A government official, two government officials said, we want you to go disciple the other church leaders in the Bible. And the pastor politely declined. I you know, had way too much to do with a thousand people that were a part of this church and all the things that were happening out of that church. And a second time they said, no, we want you to go disciple all these other church leaders. Declined a second time. Third time said, you know what, this really isn't a choice. You're going to go disciple these other church leaders. And we'll help pay for it. And so, Pastor Lamb started a discipleship training center for church leaders. And at their first gathering in 1993, they had 103 village church leaders. 103 leaders, 70 of them didn't have a Bible. Church leaders. Three months following their training, three months following training, they baptized 1,200 people. Seven months later, there were 15 new churches. Nine months later, there were 25 new churches. Twenty-seven months later, there were 57 new churches. Three years later, there were 450 new churches, over 18,000 professions of faith, and 500 church leaders trained. This is one story, one little place, where God is on the move. There are many similar stories across China in an area called Yanyin, between 91 and 2001, three house churches with 85 Christians grew to 900 churches with 100,000 members. That's like half the lifespan of this church. Three churches become 900 churches. 85 believers become 100,000 believers. Well, let's move up north to Mongolia. In Mongolia, mired in poverty, illiteracy, crime, children born out of wedlock, unemployment, uncertain future. It's not a place that anybody is lining up to go to, much less Americans. But in Memphis, Tennessee, there's a very successful pharmacist there with a young family who had been compelled to pray for Mongolia for some period of time. And in his prayers for Mongolia, at one point, God says, I want you to go. He says yes. He closes up his successful business. He moves his young family to Mongolia, to the leading city of Ulaanbaatar. In 1991, when he got there, there were two churches, largest city of the country. Two churches. In 1998, seven years later, there were 10,000 Mongolian believers. 
Now, just south of there in, in China, but it's known as Inner Mongolia, during a 12-month period in 2001, 500,000 came to Christ in one 12-month period. I'm just giving you highlights, friends. I could go on and on with each and every country. Let's go to Cambodia. Now, most of you will know that Cambodia really suffered during the years of the Vietnam War, which was right next door. And um, Cambodia became something of a conduit for weapons and supplies and all this to, to come from communists and to the troops and, and from Americans to troops and so on like that. Um, the killing fields of Cambodia absolutely littered with thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of innocent lives lost during those years. 3.3 million of the 8 million population died in those days of the killing fields of Cambodia. Pol Pot was this terroristic leader that was uh, wiping out the country as, uh, as it was seen at the time. Before Pol Pot came to power, there were about 5,000 Christians in Cambodia. After Pol Pot, there were less than 600. 1990 to 2000, those 600 Christians became 60,000. In a 10-year span, about half the span of the life of this church, 600 became 60,000. The Ho Chi Minh Trail that was so often traveled as that, as that conduit of supplies in the Vietnam War is absolutely littered with uh, potholes from American bombs. And when one American uh, missionary was visiting in a local church and participating in an Easter worship service, and the, the, the entire countryside is just potholes of bomb uh, places. They went to one of those bomb craters, filled it with water, and baptized 70 people. God is on the move. Well, real quickly, just the whole continent of Africa... Uh, strangers to Africa have desc described it as this vast, dark continent. Many outsiders view Africans as one people. It couldn't be farther from the truth. The continent is, in fact, a tangle of nations and tribes and tongues. And after World War II, the European-type colonies that had been prevalent there began to go away. Independence was springing up all over the place. A lot of tribal feuds began to take place to see who was, in fact, going to be in power now. And we've heard much about the millions that have died in Rwanda and Burundi and the Congo and Uganda and Tanzania and Zimbabwe. That's all we hear about, really, is how devastating it has been on that continent in the post-war and the surge to independence. Over the past century, the number of professing Christians in Africa has grown from 9 million to 360 million on the continent of Africa. Each month on that continent, 1,200 new churches are started. Every month. Month of February, 1,200 new churches. Month of January, 1,200 new churches. Month of March, 1,200 new churches. 
In one 12-month period, 681 were saved and started 83 churches in Ethiopia. Not necessarily a hotbed of evangelicalism. Well, let's go to a larger region that's known as the Muslim world. And if you have some awareness of the contention that's gone on between Islam and Christianity over 13 centuries, then you know that there are some things in place with Islam that make it very, very difficult for the good news of Christianity to fall on the hearing of anyone. Just one piece that we could mention is Sharia law. The Islamic Sharia law forbids a Muslim from ever converting to any other religion, and especially Christianity. To do so would be death. You'd be condemned to death if you did such a thing. Um, there have been a lot of factors through the years that have seen Christians absolutely shoot ourselves in the foot with respect to our faith so that Islam becomes more attractive to those that would be trying to consider anything about faith. Uh, we've seen a lot of corruption in the church through the years. I mean, there were centuries where the, the church was so focused on wealth and materialism and building great cathedrals and plundering the poor and all that kind of thing that many, many people flocked to Islam in those days. Um, politics has undermined the health of the church for so many years. A lot of countries had church and state the same, and so the church leader was the head of the state, and a lot of corruption was brought about in that kind of thing. It propelled people toward Islam. And Christianity's failure to address the, the problem of slavery was a huge piece because uh, Islam came along and said uh, it's illegal for anybody, for any uh, one to own a slave and if you, if you are a Muslim. And so you become a Muslim, you will no longer be a slave. Well, the slaves flocked to Islam in those days uh, to escape slavery. A lot of those things are no longer uh, major factors. Sharia law still is a major factor, but, but Christianity has seen a lot of changes through the years that has changed some of that. So that over the past two decades, more Muslims have come to Christ than at any other time in history. 1,300 years of history. In the last two decades, last 20 years, more Muslims have come to Christ than in any other time in all of history. God is on the move. There's a North African country that I could tell you about where 16,000 Muslim Berbers embraced Christianity over one 12-month span. Why? Because some political things happened where they had a choice. And when they had a choice, they chose Christianity. A Muslim state in India, Kashmir, has a population of 9 million. In 2003, approximately 12,000 Muslims came to Christ. One remarkable story is about a man by the name of Sharif. He's in an Asian Muslim nation that we'll leave nameless. But the short of it is that he was raised Muslim, and he just had questions about the Islamic teachings through all of his childhood. To such an extent, his teacher labeled him as a demon doomed for hell and commanded his family to kick him out and ostracize him. And so they did. 
After a while, uh, the, the, and he kept coming back home. He was a child. He didn't know what else to do. His father would beat him every time he came back around the house. And on one occasion, he came back around the house. His mother gave him a few coins and said, You must go away. Your father is going to kill you. And so he went away, and he just happened to meet a Christian by the name of Tom who befriended him. Long story short, he came to faith, goes to another city, goes to the university, is trained, comes back to his hometown, and tries to be a witness for Christ in his hometown. He gets beat up time and again. No one will house him, no one will feed him, no one will hire him. He looks like he's in this hopeless situation. And this one guy, Bilal, befriends him. And over the course of time, Bilal becomes a Christ follower, and the two of them decide, we will start a church in this place where they get beat up for even talking about Jesus. And so they start this church with one other Muslim family that comes to faith in Christ. 1991 to 2001, they were a part of planting 4,000 churches. And more than 150,000 Muslims have come to faith through Sharif and Bilal's ministry. Even Sharif's father and family. Now, throughout this time, over the last couple of decades, Sharif has been beaten up so many times. And the reason why he was able to escape is that every time he got beat up, they thought they'd killed him. So they thought they killed him, then they go off and leave, and he resuscitates. It's like he wouldn't die. On one occasion, they uh, nailed him to a cross. And he continues to persevere. In 2003, his friend Bilal, who had launched all these ministries with him, was beaten until he did die. Now, I could go on and on. I've just given you a few little highlights to say, friends, God is on the move. God did not send His Son into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. We are not a condemning people. We are part of God's redemptive mission. So it may look like winter. It may look like the white witch is in control. It may be looking pessimistic as more and more people choose not to have faith. But God is on the move. And the question is, will you join Him? Will you commit your life to Christ? If you've been banking on this, I'm just going to be good enough, I'm going to be, you know, more good deeds on the one side than the bad deeds on... Friend, it ain't going to work. Will you come to Christ? Will you allow Him to save you and forgive you of your sins? Will you join God? in carrying out His mission. Will you give? Friends, you've got ten months to make a pledge, pay off some of it every month, and make a substantive contribution to the mission. A hundred percent of the world Christian offering 
goes to the mission field and to the missionaries. No overhead. What's God want you to give toward that? Will you pray? I've just given you a sampling of what's going on around the world. Is there any more reason to pray than what you see God is doing? Keep on asking God to draw hearts to Himself and to redeem and to bring light to a dark world and hope to despair. And will you serve? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for just these moments of reflecting, of seeing, of hearing how You're on the move. And God, we continue to put our hope and our trust in You. We will not hope and trust in anything else, especially in ourselves. And Lord, we take this occasion to freshly pledge our commitment to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.